You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are tackling a topic that has been in the works for months because we have received, I don't know, thousands of messages at this point, Andrea, the topic of PFAS and endocrine disruptors and just broadly the endocrine system. And so to tackle this highly technical and complex topic, we've brought on two experts who we'll introduce in just a moment, but we're very excited to be finally tackling this topic. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first guest, Dr. Eve Bloomgarden. Dr. Eve Bloomgarden is a board-certified endocrinologist in the Chicagoland area, co-founder and the chief operating officer of the Illinois Medical Professionals Action Collaborative Team, IMPACT, and Chief Development Officer of Women in Medicine, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to closing the gender gap in healthcare. Love that. Dr. Bloomgarden received her medical degree from New York University and completed residency and fellowship training at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Bloomgarden's clinical expertise is in the diagnosis and management of thyroid disorders and thyroid cancer, as well as pituitary and adrenal disorders. Dr. Bloomgarden speaks and teaches on the role of healthcare professionals in countering misinformation and disinformation using social media. Impact recently published an article on social media misinformation in the New England Journal of Medicine, which we will absolutely link to in our show notes. You can follow her on Twitter at EveBMD, and you can follow Impact on Twitter and Instagram at Impact4, the number four, HC. Andrea, would you like to introduce our next guest? (laughs) I would. And so on the other side of the coin, we have an expert toxicologist who is one of the foremost leaders in all things PFAS. And so I am very thrilled to introduce Dr. Christopher Weiss. Dr. Christopher Weiss is certified in general toxicology and is the principal science advisor and CEO of Weiss Toxicology, which is based out of Bethesda, Maryland. Prior to founding his own company, Dr. Weiss served as the senior Senior Science Advisor and Toxicology Liaison to the Director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, that's NIEHS, and the National Toxicology Program, where he represented NIH, the National Institutes of Health, on national and international committees, task forces, and ad hoc working groups related to toxicology and environmental toxicology. While he was at NIEHS, Chris conducted research and represented NIEHS on many national and international committees, including service as the president of the American Board of Toxicology. Prior to his work at NIEHS, Dr. Weiss served as the forensic toxicologist for the EPA's National Enforcement Investigation Center, that's the NEIC in Denver, where he supported civil and criminal investigations for the EPA, as well as providing scientific support to dozens of federal Superfund actions and environmental emergencies 
emergencies throughout the U.S. He's worked extensively with the World Health Organization and a variety of other environmental health teams throughout his career. So now that he is no longer a government employee, we can pick his brain and utilize all of his decades of experience in discussing this very important topic. Thank you both for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And is this the first time we've had four people on the pod, Andrew? I think so, yes. This is a first, but we wanted to do this very complex and nuanced topic that has kind of blown up on social media due diligence, both from a clinical perspective, a biological perspective, and a toxicological perspective. So with that, let's kick things off. Eve, maybe you can can help just provide a little foundational information on the endocrine system. What are we talking about? What are the chemicals and organs involved, bodily processes? Can, can you help set the stage a little bit? Absolutely. So, you know, I think... I. I appreciate the the intro. This is a large topic because it, it truly is. And you know, I think it, it's important to kind of define some terms to start. And, you know, number one being, okay, well, what is the endocrine system? And basically the endocrine system is a, it, it's, it's a signaling system in the body where hormones made by glands are the primary communicators in terms of development, reproductive, thyroid, um, you know, all, all of the, all of the different, uh, aspects of the body. Um, and so what endocrinology is, is basically it's the way that our body kind of communicates and signals in order for physiologic processes to occur. And it's very complicated. And so when we talk about endocrine disrupting, what we're really talking about are synthetic or chemical, um, molecules, let's say, uh, or, or uh, uh, substances that can act through the endocrine system, meaning they can um, either mimic the signaling that normal endocrine processes uh, use to help with um, re, you know, physio- physiology, or they can block that property. They can impact kind of um, any organ system in the body. Um, and, uh, you know, we typically think of endocrine glands like thyroid gland, pituitary gland, adrenal glands, pancreas, reproductive organs like testes or, uh, ovaries. Um, and, and, a, there's, there's a large, there's a large complex, you know, uh, system behind it. Yeah. And Eve, something that, you know, I always try and explain kind of from the high level is that, you know, the endocrine system is producing these, these signaling molecules, these hormones, which can be steroid or, or fat-based, lipid-based, or protein-based. And these are like these long-term or long-distance signals that can travel from wherever they're produced at these glands or, or organs and travel throughout the whole body and have these kind of broad systemic effects. So it's understandable that people want to know what are we exposed to in our world, whether they're natural things or synthetic that can interfere with either in a positive manner or, you know, which is, uh, or in a negative manner, which is obviously of more interest to people. And that's where this, this context of endocrine disruptors comes in. And so a lot of these 
substances, whether again, they're natural from, from food sources or, or plants or things like that, or they're man-made substances, they're often called hormonally active, right? Because they're, they're mimicking or they're antagonizing some of these um, communication junctions that are required by the endocrine system in order for it to do its job. Absolutely. And to make it even more complicated, they, you know, hormones can interact with each other. Various hormones have very different actions and consequences depending on stage of life or stage of development, even impacting, you know, in utero. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of complications and interactions that go into understanding the impact of endocrinology and of hormones in general. And as such, it is also, um, you know, it, it becomes a victim of things like misinformation or um, fear mongering. We hear a lot, you know, I would say before COVID endocrine was like the number one, you know, source of med- medical misinformation, um, which is how I got interested in, in, in the area of misinformation, but it's really true. There's a lot that's, it's complicated, it's nuanced, and it's exquisitely uh, sensitive to very, very small changes in, in the local environment and internal and external. And I'm sure we're going to come back to this natural, you know, versus synthetic question, but I think that was an important thing to, to introduce as well. So would it help bring the topic to life? Can we give some examples of endocrine disruptors? And maybe that could be a nice segue into PFAS, which I feel like... <laughs> Sort of the star of the show here. That's gonna, yeah, that's going to be the spotlight. But um, maybe, maybe Chris, you can kind of kick us off, starting with maybe some synthetic endocrine disruptors. Maybe a little bit of background for some of them. Sure, I'd be glad to uh, glad to to do that, uh, Andrea. The um, uh, there are so many endocrine disruptors, and I think it's important uh, what Eve said about the fact that there are very natural endocrine disruptors, and we live, you know, we live in a world where, in many ways, surrounded by these things. So understanding them is important. Fearing them is not necessarily of importance at all. But um, some of the things that are endocrine disruptors known to cause endocrine disruption that are synthetic are a number of pesticides. Aldrin and Dieldrin have now been banned because of their endocrine disruption characteristics. Brominated flame retardants, uh, uh, these were for years sprayed on furniture and carpets and other materials in it with the, uh, with the intent of suppressing fire. It turns out they weren't so good at that anyway. But nonetheless, they bind to thyroid hormones and can, disur- can disturb uh, that whole axis. And Eve may, may expand on the importance of the thyroid in uh, endocrine disruption. DDT, uh, you still not used in this country anymore. It's been banned for some time, but it is still used in Africa and, and parts of uh, uh, developing countries to suppress. It's a wonderful tool for suppressing mosquitoes and uh, the, the diseases that are carried by insects. But um, that fortunately has been banned in this country. Uh, diethylstilbestrol and Eve. You can expand on that as a clinician. This is a very, uh, you know, probably one of the early recognized endocrine disruptors that did cause serious problems and really brought attention to, to uh, our the importance of understanding how these things work and what role they play in our own endocrine systems. And then, of course, we'll talk a little bit about PFAS. 
as as uh, as the conversation goes on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are those are some of the the key ones that come to mind. And and Chris, I think before I want to pass it over to Eve to talk about some of the clinical implications, especially about um, diethyl still DES. Yeah, but before I get to to DES um, and and that uh, I'm blaming that on all of my vaccines I got last night. But you made you made a really good point, Chris. Is that um, a lot of these are no longer used? They're banned in the United States. Um, DDT. We actually did a post on DEET, which is an insect repellent, very different right. from DDT, and right. got a lot of heat um, that was Correct. misplaced. But but again, a lot of these things were recognized to have potential health impacts, not even just to humans, but also animals, uh, particularly in the case of DDT. Very important. And were removed. And it also brings up the context of the dose making the poison. And we're going to get much more into that with regard to PFAS. But maybe, Eve, you can talk a little bit about some of the um, recognized health impacts from a clinical perspective of some of these legacy chemicals. Sure. Um, I mean, I think DES is, is a really good example um, because it was used in, I think, from 1940 to 1970 or so um, uh, and given to pregnant women as a means to prevent abortion or miscarriage and premature labor. It did not really do that, but what it did lead to was an increased risk of um, a, a rare type of vaginal cancer. And also um, we saw exposure during pregnancy uh, kind of led to all of these adverse effects in female children, um, again, including vaginal and breast cancer, reproductive tract dysfunction, menstrual irregularities. Furthermore, the grandchildren of women exposed to DES had an increased risk of other ovarian and menstrual irregularities as well. And so what this really talks about is this transgenerational um, impact of disrupting and uh, interfering with the endocrine system. And we've seen this in other examples as well. Um, we see that, you know, the daughters and the granddaughters are, are carrying these risks decades and decades later. Um, and it really points to, again, like the nuances of the way that hormones are regulated and the um, the timing and, and the amount of exposure matters. Um, there's a window in which, you know, there, there's no such thing as too much or too little in terms of hormones. It's all about homeostasis appropriate to the stage of development and what process the body is attempting to, you know, uh, go through um, starting from before you're born. And so DES is a, is a big one. The other one we saw was one of the, it was the, in Michigan, you know, the, um, the PBB, and I'm always, I have trouble saying what that really stands for, but the, the incident in which a flame retardant exposure in the 1970s led to transgenerational effects in, in terms of notable issues with the animals in real time, but we're still measuring things down the line, you know, two to three generations later. And I think what this says is, you know, we need to really understand what we're doing and what we're exposing our, our our, ourselves and our, our kids and our grandkids and our communities to. Those are like the, the big examples that I think we can we can really take in terms of the impact that really lasts much, much longer than just the moment. Um, in terms of other, you know, th there are lots of different endocrine disruptors that impact not just the reproductive systems or estrogen or, or androgen, but there, there are, there's evidence of neurotoxicities, there's evidence of obesity and increased risks of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. There's a lot of um, evidence now accumulating about the interference in thyroid function uh, leading to congenital hypothyroidism and or earlier onset of hypothyroidism with changes that are measurable in the mom all the way down through the baby and further on in life. And so these are things where the evidence is just continuing to accumulate um, since awareness really started about this 
20, 30 years ago. Certainly cause for concern, you know, warranted attention on a lot of these things, especially because there is a history of finding out after the fact, after something was in use, that there are long-term health impacts. But I think it's also important for people to understand that, you know, the endocrine system, just like most of our organ systems are very dynamic. And Eve, you made a great point about a lot of times it's about the timing of exposure to a different, a certain hormone or a certain similar mimic like an endocrine disruptor. And not all endocrine disrupting chemicals are harmful, right? So there are actually some that that actually seem to have a positive impact. So I don't know, maybe Chris or Eve, you could talk about about um, some of the phytoestrogens in soy products, perhaps? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of discussion, of course, about soy. Soy is such an important uh, protein for the w- worldwide. It's um, simple and easy to grow, and it provides a very high-quality protein. There were uh, lots of discussion about a component of soy called isoflavones, um, and one in particular, genistein. It does have biological effects. It has bi- they have biological activity. All food arguably has biological activity, but these isoflavones uh, have been uh, tested extensively with very little uh, evidence of endocrine disruption. With the with the exception of genistein, which which seems actually to reduce the concentration of blood sugar in blood and reduces um, various diseases associated with that, like diabetes, to an extent. Uh, recently, the the um, you know keeping in mind that the the report was done by the the soy industry, there was a very extensive review of the literature, a critical review of the literature that they did. It's very very good study, very very comprehensive, showing that there's really very little evidence indicating that isoflavones are problematic. And as we continue with our discussion, there's there's a balance between using soy as a as an example. The importance of high-quality protein, particularly in developing nations, is so important. You trade that off with, you know, some biological activity and using soy as an example, but there are many, many examples like that. Pesticides, you know, some some pesticides are life-saving. Absolutely. Yeah. Yet they're bioactive. They're bi- you might not want them in your water. Right. But they're they're really in many in many cases in many situations they're essential. So it gets a lot of heat, right? Because these isoflavones they they structurally are very similar to an estrogen hormone, um, specifically seventeen beta estradiol, and so. A lot of people that spread misinformation about the endocrine system have said, oh, well, eating soy is going to lead to increased um, estrogen levels. It's going to mess with your your sperm quality. It's going to lead. It's going to impact your ovulation. It's going to cause infertility. And and as Chris, you just n- noticed, um, there, there's actually no evidence that even though this is structurally very similar to an estrogen like hormone, um, it, it doesn't actually cause negative impacts to to your hormones. And I was just going to add on TikTok. And yes, that's such a wonderful source of information. There's a a whole group of people who are saying that, uh, you know, men shouldn't drink soy milk because they'll develop breasts. And so can we just talk just for a minute before we turn to PFAS, uh, sort of debunking this misconception about soy? Eve, were you going to say something? So, I mean, I think it comes back to endocrine principles, which is that, you know, the endocrine system is is uniquely designed uh, to maintain homeostasis. And it is, you know, it's not just about the level or amount of the 
hormone in circulating in the system or stored in your fat cells or wherever it, wherever it may be stored or, or produced. It's about the ability of that hormone to act on the target cell. And so, you know, we have, uh, you know, endocrine hormones or hormones, I guess that's kind of redundant, um, act through receptors. And so, and the receptors activating, blocking, or changing the amount produced or available on the surface of the cell is also finely regulated. And there are tons of redundant systems to inactivate the pathways, even if the receptor is inappropriately activated. So what that means is it's not just about, you know, if you expose yourself to too much estrogen, you're going to develop breast tissue. Yes, that is true if that estrogen is allowed to act through the pathways that, you know, exist. But there are lots of mechanisms for, you know, in thyroid function, for example, you know, we have diiodinase enzymes that basically regulate the amount of active thyroid hormone in the nucleus of each cell. And it's it's a t- fine-tuned system to maintain homeostasis. Your body does the same thing in terms of estrogen conversion, you know, tes- either estrogen conversion to activity or the ability of testosterone to be aromatized into estrogen. All of these things are very finely tuned. So it's not as simple as exposure equals consequence with the caveat that sometimes it is, right? So if you overwhelm the nuanced system and the balance of receptors and activity, you can get a clinical syndrome. So we define kind of endocrine disease as too much or too little of a hormone at a certain period of time. So, you know, you can have growth hormone excess, which is acromegaly, or you can have growth hormone deficiency, which is, you know, leads to a variety of opposite uh, complications. You can have glucocorticoid excess leading to something like cushions, or you can have adrenal insufficiency, which is the exact opposite. You can have hyper or hypothyroidism. Um, And so there's always a spectrum of uh, phenotypes based on the amount of levels. And these, um, the levels we're talking about are very, very small, um, which I think is relevant to this discussion, you know, we, we measure things in parts per million, parts per billion. And so, you know, allowing your body's own homeostatic mechanisms to auto-regulate um, your hormones is, is always ideal, but we have really good understandings of how to manage endocrine disease. And, you know, when things go awry, we're actually very good at, at fixing or replacing a hormone or, or blocking the effect of the hormone. I mean, that's kind of the nature of how we treat endocrine disorders. And so the challenge is really when you either don't know someone's exposed or when it's in a critical window of time, like puberty or um, development, um, you know, thyroid hormones, we can easily replace, or, you know, we, if you have too much, we can fix that too, but not in a developing fetus if we don't have a biomarker and ability to know what's going on. And I think that's where the big knowledge gap is existing right now is just how many endocrine disruptors are out there and um, how exactly they work and how do we really take that to a, a you know, how do we understand the impact to population or to a community as opposed to an individual. Yeah. And I think, you know, Eve, you made it, you made a couple of of really great points. I think the first is people do not give our body and organ systems enough credit for being very tightly regulated and controlling changes or pressures from external factors in regulating that. Um, I think another thing is that a lot of people automatically assume that if you consume something, it is automatically available by the relevant cells and the relevant receptors and all of that. And that's something that we hear a lot about, like collagen supplements and things like it's not getting to your joints, you know, as soon as you digest it, there's this metabolic 
metabolic process that's breaking these substances down into these tiny byproducts through all these complex pathways. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if you even consume an isoflavone, that it's automatically going to be available to the right cells and the right organs at the right time. And and so I think that that's super important for, for people to understand. And then before we get into PFAS, there's one other endocrine disruptor that I want to maybe quickly touch on, and those are intentional ones, things like hormonal contraceptions. These are intended to interfere with hormonal signaling for a clinical outcome. And there's a lot of flack about these on the TikTok. Is it the TikTok, Jess? Um, The TikTok, I just (laughs) dated myself. But there's a lot of misinformation about about contraception with regard to the, the negative consequences or the health impact of them. And, and maybe, Eve, you can quickly touch on that before we get into, into the PFAS. Yeah. So I start almost every clinic visit with don't believe anything you read online about the endocrine system and don't swallow something if you don't know what it is. I also usually include if you're going to buy a supplement online that is you know, advertising itself to support one of your glands, just save your money oh, yeah. because somebody's benefiting and it's not going to regulate your hormones. Right. And, you know, and I think the other thing, you know, that comes into play is like detoxing and like, you know, your liver and kidneys are way better than anything you're going to swallow or take or expose yourself to. So we try and really limit exposures based on like, you know, targeted marketing. And I, I really started adding that to almost every single discussion I have with my patients because um, the TikTok is a very persuasive, uh, you know, place to be. And, you know, even as an endocrinologist, it's very hard to know what's true and what's not true. And it's also very hard to quickly explain the limitations of scientific understanding, um, and the nuances of, you know, what we do on a daily basis. And I, you know, I was looking at podcasts on endocrine disruptors. There's no way to know like what's real and what's not real. I mean, there's no fact checking system or sort of authority. You know, one of the resources I, I turn to for this is the endocrine society because they have really fantastic, um, task forces and statements and data or, you know, evidence-based recommendations for, how to manage and how to think about endocrine disruptors, but that's not really something that's available for, you know, the way the layperson to digest and understand it's complicated and it's wordy. I think there's a real risk there. And, you know, sometimes I have to tell people, I'm like, take it off your phone, you know, just send me a message if you have questions about your, you know, hormones or what this is doing, but a very high level of skepticism when it comes to like claims being made on social media um, or, you know, media in general, or that a friend or a parent or a, a sibling is, is sharing with you um, is, is really critical here to not make yourself nuts. Chris, I don't know if you're on the TikTok, but the TikTok is ablaze um, with, with lots of claims. <laughs> <laughs> Most recently about about the PFAS. So, so Chris, I want to hand it over to you. Can you tell our listeners what they are, what, why are they called forever chemicals? Why is social media a buzz about PFAS? Well, that's a, that's a complicated topic, especially with the introduction that we've just had to the endocrine system. But thank you, Eve, for that. That's very, very useful. PFAS are a collection of perhaps thou- certainly thousands, maybe as many as 10,000 or more, fluorinated carbon compounds. Now, that's, a, that's the umbrella. That's the big uh, definition. 
Uh, and these materials were first invented back before World War II, in about 1938. Um, a, a chemist named Plunkett, who worked for DuPont, accidentally uh, in the, his laboratory developed this material that was very unusual. And what he what he had developed was a PFAS molecule, a specific one called PFOA, or perfluorooctanoic acid. And um, just to break, I won't go through this with every PFAS, all 10,000 of them, but I think it's worth understanding the nomenclature a little bit. So per in a chemistry lexicon, in chemistry language, it means every. Per fluoro, that's the fluorine atom, which really makes these molecules um, troublesome, and but also makes them really unusual and useful for many, many purposes. Per fluoro, octanoic, octa is eight, right? So octanoic acid. So there's eight carbons, all fluorinated, per, all fluorinated octanoic eight carbon acid so there's a, a a molecule called a carboxylic acid on the end and that's so these things are named and some of them are are, are named in names that are very difficult to pronounce and they're long and there are ten thousand of them so we won't go through all of them but um it wasn't long after these were invented that that some of the workers in the dupont plants began to complain of uh health effects from, from these. So this is not as new as many people think. And there, if you look at the history of these molecules and um, the development of uh, various types of uh, PFAS molecules, thousands of them, there's an on and off uh, emerging realization that there were some some, in some cases, very serious health effects associated with these things. So why are they, you know, why are they so uh, popular and why are they used? They're, they're, they're ubiquitous in so many parts of our, our lives. They're, dr they're used for drilling lubricants. They're used in cosmetics because of uh, the way they help the cosmetics spread when it's applied. They're used in uh, packaging, that slippery stuff on the inside of your pizza box um, is, is spread on there with, with various PFAS molecules. They're used in Teflon cookware. They're used to spread the Teflon on the cookware. They're not really um, part of the cookware intentionally. Nonetheless, some of them are around, hanging around. So when you overheat the pan, uh, you can have a problem, and this this has been the case for for a long time, and and still to a certain extent, if the pan gets hot enough, it's still a problem. So, um, these these molecules have made their way into our lifestyle when you put on a Gore-Tex jacket or something like that. But what what's really I think, and and there there are a wide variety of ways that exposure occurs but most importantly and i i'm sure that um the, the regulatory agencies agree with this the most important pathway is is through drinking water and drinking water is is becoming um uh more and more scarce in in our country and taking care of it is is extremely important um so the Environmental Protection Agency is working very hard, and we can go. We can talk 
about this in detail over the past uh, several years to establish a way to that that was first of all very health conscious and uh, secondly a way to implement the removal of this material from water that was that we're capable of doing because they're very very difficult to to remove they're very these molecules are very persistent because of the fluorine atom the normal degradation of carbon compounds is not possible. The fluorine prevents bacteria that normally break these things down from even reaching the carbon bond. So they're sometimes, and I don't like the nomenclature, frankly, they're referred to as forever chemicals. Maybe we can call them eight-year chemicals? We need a uh, new language for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, it's important to, to mention that uh, the National Institutes of Health, for, for one, is spending millions of dollars to support chemists who are learning how to break these things down. So they're not thanks to these smart people who are oxidizing these things and, and able to, to break them apart. Hopefully soon we'll have a method to remove them and break them down. We're not there yet, but they're not necessarily forever chemicals. One more thing that makes these things problematic from a biological and toxicological point of view is that, uh, or perhaps two things, they're very persistent in the body. Uh, toxicologists, pharmacologists measure the lifetime of drugs in the body by something called a half-life. So the half-life is the time it takes to remove half the concentration from your body. These chemicals have a very, very long half-life. That makes them difficult to deal, deal with from a toxicological point of view and from a health point of view in, in general. The other thing that's unusual about these carbon compounds is most fluorinated carbon compounds um, or, or halogenated, I should say, most halogenated carbon compounds like the pesticides, the chlorine-based uh, pesticides, partition into fat, into fat molecules, which we all have, and therefore become less metabolically active. PFAS partitions into the serum and the blood where it courses throughout the body. So your, your body is, the, the material is very persistent, but it also remains circulating throughout your body, which is, which is problematic. And it makes um, the toxicological evaluation of what's going on very, very complex. In the body, there's so many organ systems that are, that are affected. The, Eve just went through the endocrine system, so when you take when you take this, uh, you know, the number of organs and tissues uh, bathed in, in these molecules and you couple it with the complexities of the endocrine system, piecing apart what's going on and, and trying to mitigate and eliminate uh, the, the health effects becomes very, very difficult. Obviously, this sounds daunting to people. Right. And and you but you mentioned, Chris, that there are thousands of these PFAS. Right. So. So, you know, are we... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just 
$9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Worried about all of them? Are we worried about certain ones? You know, what's, what's kind of the takeaway for the everyday person when they're trying to navigate a world where, at least at this point, they're ubiquitous, at least some of them are, and there aren't super effective ways to kind of biodegrade them. So that's a really important point, Andrea. Not all 10,000 PFAS are out there in our environment, thank goodness, uh, but they're, they're not. There are a wide variety of PFAS in the environment, and they're, the environment is dominated by a relatively few number, about somewhere between five and 15 of these things are regularly found. The United States Geological Survey just finished a a comprehensive uh, survey of water quality, water systems and private wells throughout the country about seven, they took about 716 samples or something like that. And they found about nine uh, PFAS that are in water, and, and in some cases, not in all cases, but in far and away most cases, these were in extremely low, low concentrations. And uh, there, were, there are exceptions to that in areas where the material has been manufactured, manufacturing plants, where it's been disposed of in landfills. But nonetheless, we don't, we're not right now having to deal with all 10,000 PFAS or however many there are. Thank goodness. That's reassuring. And to that study, the U.S. Geological Survey study, I think, you know, that was something that that we even consulted you when we did that post because the media kind of exaggerated the findings and they were suggesting that 45% of drinking water both private and public, was contaminated with toxic levels. And I think the point you make, first of all, of the sites that it was PFAS were detected, um, and specifically two were kind of the ones of most interest, the, the PFOA that you noted, Chris, and also another one called PFOS. Only, only about 6.7% of sites had levels exceeding the, those new EPA thresholds that you noted uh, for PFOA, and only 4.2% of sites had levels of PFOS that exceeded. So 70% of all of those sites tested had no detectable PFAS of, of any of the ones that were tested. So I think, yes, PFAS are a concern. It is certainly has health implications, but it's maybe not as dire as media headlines are making it sound. That, that's right. That's right, Andrea. And, you know, the media said half of I think they use the term half of the water systems are contaminated. The 45% that USGS uh, uh, indicated may may be affected was a model. It, they observed they observed PFAS, including those well below the EPA's recent exposure proposed exposure limit. There were 30, 30% of the samples that they observed out of the 716. Uh, Now, they they used a model to predict because not all the um, quantitation limits for the measurement were the same. So they go up and down. So they used a a model for that. But this is where, you know, the media, uh, thank goodness for the media, 
but they can get it. It's easy to get it wrong, right? You can get it. You can get it wrong. So what what should have been said was they modeled that their contamination. They made a prediction. And even those levels are not necessarily levels that would pose a health impact. Right. Now, you know, the toxicology of PFAS is evolving as we speak. And EPA in March of this year proposed for the first, right now, it's important to mention to, to your audience that PFAS is not regulated. As no, there are no enforcement tools that the federal government has to to regulate PFAS. So, uh, but EPA in March this year proposed an approach which I think is was very uh, um, very well put together, very well thought out. They consulted with their science advisory board and independent groups of scientists to to sort of vet the proposal. And they will be, uh, they have proposed regulatory values um, for six PFAS that are the most, what, what they perceive as the most problematic right now. And um, that will change. EPA is not going to give up with those six. They'll keep investigating and conducting research. But I would encourage um, your audience and anyone else to um, to to look and see what that proposal is and make a comment to EPA. There, op- I think I'm not sure the comment period is still open, but it doesn't hurt to let them know what you think. I don't know that it's necessary to go through what that proposal is right now, but um, you know, once again, the two legacy, the two legacy PFAS that you mentioned, PFOA and PFOS, they have solid um, what are called maximum contaminant level. It's a proposed maximum contaminant levels, and uh, that means that EPA will be able to require distribution system, public distribution systems to meet those levels. EPA also generates what are called MCLGs or maximum contaminant level goals. And for any carcinogenic chemical, that goal is always zero. So the their goal, EPA's goal is to get it completely out of water. Sometimes it's possible to do that. Sometimes it's just not possible to do that. But so each of these six chemicals will ultimately have an MCL, an approach to regulating those chemicals, both individually and individually for PFOA and PFOS, and as a group for the, for the, uh, for the other uh, chemicals that they will be proposing. One of the things to emphasize is, you know, that there are, I guess, a few things. Number one is there are times that the, there is no minimum like level of exposure that's safe. And I think understanding that in terms of hormone um, actions and endocrinology is, is really key. And we may or may not have the ability to measure um, the, these levels in a, in a way that we can interpret clinically. So my, the way that I look at it is how do we figure out who are the the vulnerable populations and how do we look through a protective and equitable lens to make sure that we're, we're protecting everybody and that we're providing people with actionable advice, but really that we're taking it back a step onto a more of a public regulations and, you know, policy level, because the idea of like telling, you know, pregnant women to like avoid 
X, Y, and Z, you know, and to follow strict diets and strict exposure risks and to pay for very expensive glass bottles or, you know, not to microwave their food doesn't sit well with many of us for obvious reasons and is also not going to be as impactful as things like, you know, making sure we don't have food deserts, making sure there's affordable, you know, things, there's affordable options for healthcare, there's access to healthcare. I mean, there's so many bigger fish to fry that I think the the idea of this being an individual responsibility to take action and ownership over this, like for yourself is really not the right place to like put this responsibility. Um, you know, like there are things like eating a healthy diet and exercising that may, that, that very well will meet, mitigate a lot of the risk that we're seeing. And so really emphasizing like what we can all do while working on the policy side of things to be sure that, you know, we're, we're not, putting chemicals into the ground or like contamination areas that are going to affect future generations. I mean, I think things that keep me awake at night, I would say like climate change, you know, like access to like healthcare, gun violence, you know, racism, equity, like those things are like, you know, that I lose sleep over. I occasionally will microwave something in plastic and I don't think twice about it. Yeah. Right. And so I, I do too. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's, and that's a great point because like a lot of the outcry, at least on our social media channels are people that are coming from a, a place of great privilege. Yes. Right. And they're, they've got this indignation about something that they saw on social media. And I think it's super important to think about like the context, you know, and, and maybe this is a topic for another episode, but you know, Chris is obviously an expert in super fun sites. And those are sites that have historically had large amounts of, of chemical contamination and are no longer suitable for living or residing nearby. And we know that many marginalized low-income communities are often situated close to Superfund sites, whereas people of higher socioeconomic status, uh, you know, are, are protected against that. So it's like, g- good for you, Karen, that you can afford your fancy glass, cosmetics, whatever it is. Exactly. All right. So, I mean, Eve, you kind of read my mind. Um, I think a a lot of people, there, there's a lot of anxiety around this topic, a lot of health anxiety in general. Um, so we get this question a lot. You know, we, we've even acknowledged in this episode that people are exposed to PFAS in water. We know that they could be found in cosmetics. There are other sources, right, of, of, of potential exposure. So people are very concerned about this the, the bioaccumulation of the, you know, the cumulative effect. If we're exposed to these things all the time and in lots of different ways, you know, how, how nervous should we be? Should we, should we be worried about bioaccumulation and are there tangible ways to reduce our potential exposure? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's, there's a, combination of answers here. Number one is we can only move one way in time right now. And so, you know, if you can't go backwards in time, then there's a lot of fear and anxiety that doesn't actually allow you to like do anything about it. And a, a big part of me will recommend like, you know what, there's nothing we can do about the past. What can we do now to keep you healthy? If you're taking care of yourself, if you're exercising, if you're going to see your doctor, if you can see, if you can get access to healthcare, you know, there's not going to be an exposure from 30 years ago that is causing like a, that's causing something that's really going to be clinically meaningful that we can't find any evidence of, and that you're going to have to go to like alternative testing and go into the weeds and like, let it consume you. You know, I think a certain amount of restoring trust in the health system and in understanding how we identify disease versus, you know, normalcy versus, you know, 
yeah, things happen and it's okay that it's no big deal or like, let's just move forward from this. I think it's a hard balance. And I think, you know, for example, like people are super worried about their water, but like aren't worried about, you know, COVID-19 or don't get their vaccines to prevent, you know, illnesses that like will cause death. Like there's got to be some sort of like comparison and really a pragmatic approach to how you worry about your own health. And I think, you know, again, goes back to like not putting the responsibility on individuals to be able to sort through this information, but making sure things like, you know, lead exposure or things like DES or, you know, other things that we have historical references for, like that that is happening at a much bigger level, I think is really the key here. You know, the other thing is listening to the community when something's going on, you know, like, for example, you know, when there are uh, higher incidences of cancer or when you're seeing, you know, more like congenital malformations. If you are asking questions about like, you know, triple negative breast cancer in African-American communities, and then you're, you know, maybe the right next question is what, what are they exposed to that, that others aren't, you know? And so that, that goes into like the makeup cosmetic industry, but, you know, there are really, there are things like wear your seatbelt, like exercise, don't smoke that are much more important, you know, get health screenings. And I try and really kind of flip the perspective so that people, to, to allow people to not spend so much time stressing about this. And sometimes I'll use personal examples, like, you know, again, like the microwave or, you know, I don't have, I don't follow any sort of like really hard and fast rules to avoid exposure, but I did when I was pregnant. Right. So like, there are also like when to focus, how do we empower certain communities at certain times that are higher risk and how do we, um, you know, how do we make it as easy as possible for people to stay well? A lot of this is public health science communication policy and is not, you know, individual TikTok doing your own research. Yeah. And I think there's a lot right. to be said to like forgive, resp- like don't don't take this on yourself, you know, and don't like the world's not missing something. And if we are, there are like a lot of people acting in alignment to try and figure that out. Working on that. Yeah, that's a a huge, hugely important. You know, I love that perspective. And as Chris mentioned, right, EPA is is on the case, right? They're working on this. Maybe, uh, Chris, you can comment kind of in light of or in, you know, in the as we wait for those regulations to be approved and implemented, if people, you know, want to try and mitigate their own personal exposure, what would be some easy, low stress ways that they could do that? Well, I like what Eve said about community. There's a lot that can be done. There's a, there's, you know, uh, small personal actions, you know, when am I in a high exposure situation? When am I not? And the, um, going back to the topic of water exposure, which is probably one of the most, um, important exposure routes that we have. I recently moved well, a couple of years ago now, but one of the first things I did was call the water plant and ask, could you Provide the information that you collect on a monthly or quarterly basis regarding what's in my water. And they do. They have that. And they're part of the community. We, you know, as divided as, as we sometimes seem, we live in a community. It used to be, you know, uh, you know, 500 years ago, there was only one water pump and you went and got your water from the water and you knew what was in that well, you know, when somebody's cow passed away next to the well, it was a problem. Well, we can still do that. You can still play a role as a member of the community and find out what is in your water. 
and I get I get in trouble all the time for this, but I when I go and buy fish at the market at the grocery store, I ask the person behind the counter, where did the fish come from? I want to know. And uh, it's it's good to find out what the source of your food is. Hundred years ago, we all knew because it grew in the backyard, right? But now it doesn't. But you can still find out. That's one thing. I know FDA is working very, very hard to to get PFAS and many other contaminants uh, like asbestos out of uh, cosmetics. So I had the opportunity uh, to work with them on some of that. And hopefully that that will happen over the course of um, you know, months or years. FDA will acquire the ability to regulate the amount of um, PFAS in, in cosmetics. That seems to me to be a reasonably high uh, exposure source. So if you think about that, um, and and use cosmetics sparingly or ask, you know, ask the question, call your cosmetic vendor and ask, is there PFAS in this? It, public opinion and public pressure really is an essential part of, of this. Agreed, Eve, that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily our personal responsibility to, to, to regulate water that comes out of the tap, but um, asking the questions about it is really a, a, a strong and very powerful way to make change. I 100% agree with that. And then I think there's a responsible media, you know, and making sure that we're, you know, that we are um, not overblowing a situation when there's no alternative either, right? And so, you know, when we have a question of whether, you know, a specific type of makeup is like, impacting your, you know, great grandchildren's ovarian function, like, yes, but also not on the news and as a headline, because it's not helpful. And it may actually have downstream consequences when you start avoiding things that are really critical for health and wellness and, and, you know, um, longevity and all of these things, you know, and I, I think we just need to be careful about the impact of these kind of Un, poorly understood, but very fear-mongering statements that go out because yes. we can't expect everyone to understand like the complicated nuances of intracellular signaling. Um, but, you know, <laughs> and, and we can't tell people not to eat certain foods or drink certain things if there's no alternative. And, you know, if it's only if you are have pr- the privilege or the financials or the access to certain things. And so, you know, a sort of social responsibility when it comes to like information sharing is, you know, obviously that applies to everything that we talk about on a daily basis, but I I think a better language and then a a more structured ability to raise concerns in the community, you know, and I think um, making sure that scientists are in direct communication with community leaders, you know, when it comes to concerns and questions, even if it's to distill misinformation or if it's to listen to the community, because they're going to know, like the community knows before, you know, before somebody high up knows. And, you know, going to TikTok is going to happen. There's not much we can do about it, but also going through avenues, you know, where that can impact change and, you know, having these independent scientists and, you know, facilities and independent, you know, think tanks and that will take you seriously in making sure everyone knows how to bring their concerns to the table, I think is like the, uh, the piece that tends to be missing in a lot of these conversations. And, you know, and then just going back to like, it's, it's all nuanced. So there's like, things aren't good or bad, right? You know, there is a, um, 
there's a thousand steps in between that. And I think we don't have to cast a value. Like chemicals aren't bad. Like natural is not good. Like they're words that carry a lot more information and like the, the appeal to nature fallacy. Like I see so much harm being done from people swallowing things that are like natural that, you know, um, I, I think there's, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that we need to do in this. That, that asbestos is natural, right. you know? Right. I mean, yeah. right. so many things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Eve, it really underscores like, you know, the endocrine system is super complex. There's redundancies, there's regulatory processes, our immune system is complex. And, and you know, a lot of people that promote misinformation, whether it's the media or, or people on social media, you know, they often co-op these limited pieces of evidence or, or um, evidence that is not causal. It's correlative. It's, it's not parsing out variables that may confound the observations. And so that's why it's really important for scientists, clinicians, you know, all of these organizations and entities to work together because, you know, as you said, there are bigger fish to fry. There are these sorts of, you know, topics related to endocrine function are very important. But if you're not doing the other things to have access to food and good quality sleep and preventive health care, you know, in the grand scheme of things, avoiding, you know, cosmetics is probably lower on the hierarchy of things that we can do for overall health. So I think, you know, framing it in that way can really help to alleviate a lot of the the anxiety that many people um, encounter. And we need to stay humble. We also don't have Absolutely. all the answers. So I think it's a Absolutely. it's an understanding that like to the best of our ability, we try and separate forests from trees and making sure that like we're, you know, at least aligning with the benefit of those who we're trying to help um, with the understanding that like we might not, our whole system of understanding causality is going to be different when it comes to low level exposures over very long periods of time. than you know, when it comes to like poison equals bad or, you know, a measurable outcome in the moment. And that's how kind of like our, you know, our, our systems were designed in terms of harm. And so, you know, I think we have, a, we have a ways to go in restoring trust and also in communicating and, you know, I'll always come back to that. Um, but from a from my standpoint, I don't get on a soapbox and say this doesn't matter. And I think that's really key because it may matter. I think it, it's really about, you know, trying to help people kind of be more pragmatic about it and to alleviate some of the fears and also to take away some of the self-blame and, you know, um, and issues that are much bigger than that individual. And, um, you know, I think. I think that like, as long as we have equitable and, you know, equitable solutions that um, are accessible and that are navigated on a much higher level, we, we can at least keep our North Star moving in the right direction. That's a great point. And, and, you know, to that point, you know, and, and Chris, I'm going to hand it over to you for any kind of last thoughts um, before we wrap, but, but, you know, there are new regulatory frameworks in, in multiple agencies. There are new research models that are being developed to better understand and parse out confounding variables and identify cause versus effect of these types of exposures that are very complicated and interacting with a very complicated um, physiological system so that we really can expand the knowledge and navigate um, these sorts of topics better collectively. So, you know, hopefully I think the listeners have, have kind of walked away with 
you know, yes, there are things that you should be aware of, but maybe you don't need to be as paralyzed with fear that the endocrine system is pretty remarkable at, at balancing itself, even if you are exposed to certain things. Or treating it if it's not right. Exactly. Or treating it. And and you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I know Jess loves that phrase. Chris, any last thoughts from a toxicological perspective, you know, about PFAS or, or anything like that before we wrap? You know, I had the privilege over the last 12 years of working with NIH for NIH on the NIH campus in Bethesda. And there is an army. There's over 17,000 employees on that campus, um, not counting those that are not on the campus. And they're working really hard on on understanding what's going on, not you know, not just with uh, PFAS, but extensively with PFAS, and uh, lots of lots of emerging science. Toxicology is on um, is about to change radically in the coming years and and, and decades as we begin to employ uh, robotics, uh, high-throughput screening. Uh, Just north of me here in Bethesda, there is a a team of robots who 24 hours a day, seven days a week run assays to test the biochemistry and toxicology of various mixtures and individual substances. They can run thousands of samples a day, uh, and they run every day. And all the, the amount of information coming from that is just tremendous. So this to say, there's a lot going on. Uh, we haven't heard the, the last from the Environmental Protection Agency on their efforts to continue to uh, make sure that we have clean water. Uh, but, you know, by the way, it's, you know, without a doubt, the United States has some of the cleanest water in the world, uh, an important thing to remember as we, you know, as we, and and it's good that we remain concerned about the quality and and keep improving it. But, you know, remember that um, we are, we are pretty much at the top of the the heap when it comes to being able to, to deliver clean water to almost our entire population. There are exceptions, of course, but so I'm looking forward to, further information on the topic, continued work on these complex problems. Uh, I think that we're well underway uh, once EPA establishes these maximum contaminant levels, we're going to see a tremendous drop in exposure. So that's all very bright things on the future. New tools, um, uh, you know, strong regulatory uh, efforts underway, and uh, it's it's looking up. Ending on an optimistic note. We love that, Chris. I love that, yeah. Um, Eve, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a, a comprehensive and necessary conversation. Obviously, we really only scratched the surface. There's so much more we could say. Um, right, right, But right. we had to go here because uh, people had a lot of questions, and uh, and. Chris, as you said, you know, we'll learn more, our knowledge will evolve, and we'll continue to share. I learned so much from Chris and from you guys um, about this. So this is wonderful. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for, for having us. Absolutely. Thank, thank you both. I think it, it gave everyone a very comprehensive, high-level overview. Um, of course, there are tons of data. Um, but go to the credible sources. Don't go to the TikTok. Thank you again, Dr. Chris Weiss and Dr. Eve Bloomgarden for joining us. Um, listeners, we hope you learned a thing or two. And if you want to support our efforts and help grow the impact and reach of unbiased science, 
We welcome your contributions. We have a donation page on our website, a Venmo and a coffee account. We also have some fun, snarky science merch, um, including science is sexy and your anecdote is not evidence. And you can pick those up on our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. Make sure, of course, to subscribe to our YouTube, which is YouTube at unbiasedscipod and all of our social media accounts. Same handle at unbiased pod catch you next time on the pod your trusted source for no nonsense just science yeah oh i am a scientist yeah oh i am a scientist